Praise the Lord. Uh, Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laid down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots before, excuse me. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you, that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of, my, on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming even more stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on the account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days 
and three nights. You may be seated. Good morning. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And so begins the book of Jonah. The first nine words of the book introduce us to the two primary figures. The Lord and Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. I'd like you to to take a, a step back with me to get a big picture view of some of the things going on during the time of this real historic Jonah, the prophet. Who is this Jonah? Well, we do have some evidence of who this particular person is. And if you would, turn with me to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 14. Give some historical evidence. I begin reading in verse 23. 2 Kings 14, 23. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. This would be Jeroboam II. Verse 24 tells us about Jeroboam II. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. And then we see in verse 25, one of the markers of his reign. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath, north, to the Sea of the Arabah in the south. According to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath, Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So right here we see some historical evidence Right here, 2 Kings 14, 23 through 27. Another piece of evidence of who this person Jonah is, we're going to find out over the next eight, nine weeks as we study this book of Jonah. One of the 66 books the Lord's given to us in the Holy Scripture. But there's also a third piece of evidence I'd like to show you this morning. And it's in the New Testament, in Matthew Chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh 
will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Here in Matthew 12, Jesus likens Jonah's three-day, three-night experience in the fish with his yet-to-come three-day, night experience in the earth, pointing toward his burial and resurrection. And it's interesting in that same Matthew 12 text that he also points to and brings out these men of Nineveh and recounts for the scribes and Pharisees that they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So, what we are reading in this book of Jonah is not something fantastical, it's not some myth, it's not an allegory in the mold of Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. The book of Jonah is at one level a, a personal history of God's dealings with his servant, in this case, the servant being Jonah. But at another level, there are rich doctrinal themes that permeate throughout the 48 verses of this book. The resurrection of Christ, the sovereignty of God, sovereignty of God over all men, over kings, over nature, over created things. God's mercy, God's heart of compassion for all nations. In terms of structure, perhaps a few different ways to, to look at the book. I prefer to keep it simple. We'll divide it this way. Jonah chapter 1 and 2 is going to show us God's first call to Jonah. In chapters 3 and 4, we'll see God's second call to Jonah. Praise God, there was a second call to Jonah. We're going to see in the midst of those calls the response from man, the response from Jonah. Here in chapter 1, we're going to see disobedience as a response. We see later on there's a rebuke. We need to understand that Jonah, from context, Jonah is is from, as we saw in 2 Kings, it's from a village of Gath-Hefer, uh, thought to be some two miles or so north, northwest of Nazareth. So if you're looking on your map, you can kind of get a picture of where he's from, from the tribe of Zebulun. Okay? In terms of placing Jonah on a historical timeline, the book itself recounts events which occurred around the time of uh, 780 to 760, somewhere in there, uh, B.C. <clears throat> Jeroboam II is the king of Israel. Amaziah is reigning in Judah. It's the period of the kings. We're in the midst of the divided kingdom. And Jonah comes on the scene after Elisha, the prophet, before the time of Hosea and Amos. And Israel is in the midst of prosperity. Things are going well for Israel at this particular point in time. 
2 Kings text tells us that the borders of Israel were expanded during the reign of Jeroboam II. According to the word of the Lord passed down through the prophet Jonah. I want you to keep in mind that Jeroboam II is an evil king. He was a wicked king. Israel truly had no good kings. Good, let's put a definition, good in terms of walking in the way of the Lord. And yet the second king's text says that he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam. God saved them by the hand of Jeroboam. And I read that second king's text and I see God's mercy on display even then. Did Israel deserve such a thing? No. But he allowed them to prosper for a time. Another major influence at this point in history is the Assyrian kingdom. A brutal, violent, wicked force. In fact, according to the history records, Israel is routed by the Assyrians around 722 B.C. And we see Judah is taken into captivity over 100 years later by the Babylonians. And we we see the the actual destruction of Jerusalem in, in around 586. BC. I'm giving you all this as, as some context, some timeline, so you can put Jonah in here and be able to see Jonah is a real person. Jonah is not some mythical character, like some today perhaps want him and make him out to be. No, I believe from the scripture that Jonah was truly a real person in history. He sits in the timeline, in the context of Jeroboam II, who was a real king. I don't hear too much doubting and debating about Jeroboam II reigning. And we see from the words of Christ himself that he gives evidence using Jonah as an example, likening his own three-day, three-night experience to Jonah's in the belly of the great fish. Surely this man Jonah is a real person. And to make him out to be something other than that, we're making Christ himself to be a liar. So in the midst of this historical timeline, and understanding the power of the Assyrian army and the current prosperity of Israel, amidst a wicked king, now, especially now, the word of the Lord is needed. Amen? The word of the Lord is needed. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to just track for a moment this word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. But you know what, church? The word of the Lord appears all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let there be light. He spoke creation into being. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... You see, the word of the Lord was communicated clearly to Adam when God placed him in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, The word of the Lord becomes open for discussion. 
As the serpent comes on the scene to dialogue with Eve. See, the word of the Lord is compromised and sin enters the picture. Genesis chapter 4. The word of the Lord is ignored and Cain's sin leads to the death of his brother Abel. Genesis chapter 6, the word of the Lord calls forth destruction of all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die, Genesis 6, 17 says. A flood was coming. Why? Genesis 6, 5 says, because the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, the word of the Lord no longer held preeminence among the people created by the Lord. It doesn't take long before the people of God turn to their own devices. Six chapters into Genesis. The heart of God is grieved at the state of man. And instead of adhering to the word of the Lord, his people were slaves to sin slaves to the flesh, slaves to the wicked world around them. The word of the Lord came to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. The word of the Lord comes to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. The word of the Lord is delivered to his people through Moses in Exodus 20, what we know as the Ten Commandments. In Judges chapter 21, Scripture says that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The word of the Lord was not needed, it seemed. People were content walking in their own ways. Just a few chapters later in the first Samuel chapter 3, we read that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. King Saul, his reign is torn from him because he had not, according to Samuel 13, 14, he had not kept what the Lord commanded him. And all throughout the period, of the kings and the prophets, the word of the Lord is evident in the scriptures. Not always heeded, but evident. And then Christ, the Lagos, leaves heaven and he comes to earth. And the word of the Lord dwelt among men. John 1, 14. God's word comes down to man, and yet here's the result, John 1.11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The Lagos, he died on the cross. He was buried, he was raised, he ascended to be back with his Father in heaven. And the word of the Lord is still not absent. Just ten days following his ascension, he sends another counselor. Not another word, but another counselor who would point people to the very word of the Lord. That's the Holy Spirit. You see, the word of the Lord comes to man as the Holy Spirit unveils his blind eyes. The Holy Spirit is man's greatest teacher, pointing the believer in Christ and convicting the one outside of Christ toward the truth of Christ himself. Now, I trace all of this to make a point. When the text says... Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. I want you to see that the word of the Lord has been around since the beginning. 
In fact, the psalmist says this in Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled. In other words, your word stands firm in the heavens. Forever. The word of the Lord, church, is not a new thing. Nor is it confined to a period of time in the book of Jonah. Yes, perhaps it was delivered differently to Jonah. But the word of the Lord is still alive today. The word of the Lord is still held forth as the word of life. It's still the truth. It's still the way of obedience. Jonah was a prophet. Many of you here know that. But prophets aren't the only ones receiving a word from the Lord. The Lord has spoken to you and continues to speak to you through His God-breathed word. And this word, according to what the word says, this word is profitable for your soul, able to make you wise for salvation. Amen. Question. Is this what we have right here before us in Jonah chapter 1? Is this the first word of the Lord that came to Jonah? According to what I read in 2 Kings 14, I believe there had been a previous word from the Lord. That word of the Lord, church, is carried out. The word is that Israel would expand her borders during the reign of Jeroboam II. And that is exactly what happens. Despite the wickedness of Jeroboam II. You know, when you read that 2 Kings text, there's no hint there in the text of disobedience in communicating this word of the Lord. The message is intended for his own countrymen. And and the message is a good word. And Jonah gets the word of the Lord out. Now as you get to the word of the Lord in Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1, it's important to understand Jonah's history with the Lord, recorded in 2 Kings, chapter 14. This is not the first word of the Lord given to Jonah. It's also good to understand Something about this word given to Jonah. You see, because the, jo- the word for Jonah here in chapter 1, verse 1, comes with authority. It comes with authority on two accounts. First of all, we need to understand that it is the word of a sovereign king. It's the word of a sovereign king. You know, if you think about in military terms, When that person who's ahead of you in rank gives an order, you don't question it, you carry it out. And I believe there's some some great parallel there in terms of our role, our responsibility as a subject of the king. That when he speaks, we obey. 
when the word of the Lord comes your way? Is it met with a skeptical spirit? A doubting heart? Confusion? Rationalization? Or is it received on the basis of who's speaking? The sovereign king of the universe. So, this word of the Lord comes with authority. First of all, from the standpoint, it's a word of the sovereign king. But secondly, we need to understand that this word is also a righteous word. When you read Jonah 1 verse 2, we see what the Lord says. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah in light of Nineveh's wickedness. The basis of this calling, church, is not irrational. It makes good sense that God would desire to send one of his own to cry out against sin. As a holy God, he will not condone Sin. It must be judged. And Jonah is chosen for the assignment. Quite a different assignment than the first one described in 2 Kings 14, huh? A word of the Lord to your own people, carrying good news. Pretty comfortable with that assignment. Now he receives the word of the Lord to another people. People that he doesn't really care for. And the word is is a message that in his own mind would not be deemed good news. Wouldn't be well received. The Assyrian capital city of Nineveh is the destination. Pagans. Why would God have any desire to send me to that place? Question. Who are you to pick and choose your assignments when they come to you from the Sovereign King? Or biblically speaking, who are you, O man, to reply against God? Romans 9, 20. You see, Jonah may very well have had the interest and honor of God in mind but one's motives, however spiritual they may be, do not replace the direct commands of the Lord. Jonah immediately goes a different direction, doesn't he? And yet what is it that set him in motion contrary to the will of God? Was it the danger of the mission? Did he fear his life in going to Nineveh? 
I don't believe so, even though the mission was surely a dangerous one. We can piece together what the mission perhaps was like. We get a picture of some 100 years plus later through the prophecy of Nahum, another one of the minor prophets. I'd encourage you to read Jonah and Nahum together. But Nahum gives us a picture, again, some 100 years plus later, the people of Nineveh revert back to their ways, their sinful ways, their perverse ways. To give us a picture of what that is, Nahum describes that in part, chapter 3, 1 through 3. He says, woe to the bloody city. It is full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. So if not the danger of the mission, was it the difficulty of the mission? Did he doubt himself going to such a heathen nation? Did he go to Tarshish simply because the mission just didn't quite add up in his mind? And then after trying to piece together how this mission might go down, did he come to the conclusion that it was fruitless? I don't see that in the text either. No doubt it was a difficult mission. But when you turn to Jonah chapter 4, and you get to verse 2, we see a prayer here from Jonah. This is after Jonah has preached, and the people have repented, and God has relented from his wrath. Here's the prayer. Prayed to the Lord and said, verse 2, chapter 4. Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. He's given us the reason he fled right here. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. I want us to see, church, Jonah fled to Tarshish because of what he knew about God. <laughs> this was not an ignorance, an absence of knowing God on Jonah's part. Jonah's knowledge of God, though, doesn't excuse his blatant disobedience to the call of God. Pride issues, concern over God blessing these Gentiles, these Ninevites. He may have had some motives there, but whatever those motives were, and however spiritual those motives were, the bottom line is he received a call to go, and we see that he disobeys. One writer said, unquestioning obedience to God is most emphatically taught in this passage. Leave all things to him. 
Let his word of command be enough for thy duty. Let me read that again. Let his word of command be enough for thy duty. His word of promise, enough for thy faith. And whatsoever more thou shalt in any case seek, shall turn out thy thorn and trouble. Another writer said that Jonah took counsel with his own flesh and blood. And when he conferred with his carnal wisdom, he forsook the first principle of piety, subjection to the call and word and will of God. It goes on and says, he did not need to be less concerned with the honor of God, but what he needed was a simpler Abrahamic faith, allowing this new disclosure of God's character to go forward at God's call, not knowing whither it went, but assured that God himself would bring it safely and in stainless glory to the mark and goal which he had appointed. And you know, while it's difficult to be 100% certain on someone's motives, you, you can read the text surrounding context and put pieces together to get a more complete picture of what's happening. One thing is for sure. Jonah had been used of God previously, as evidenced in 2 Kings 14. And, and I'd like to just touch on those two assignments for just a moment. I believe they're very relevant to each one of you here. There's no biblical evidence that Jonah questioned the first call of God in 2 Kings 14. No, no question, no reason to question Jonah's immediate obedience to God's call. But when you arrive at Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, the text is clear on Jonah's disobedience to God's call. Verse 3 says, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. So the assignment from 2 Kings is quite different from the assignment in Jonah chapter 1. And yet, are you at liberty as the clay to question the potter's assignments? Has he given you an assignment for your pleasure to, to make you happy? Has he assigned you a mission only if you happen to agree with it? We need to be reminded this morning he's the sovereign king and his assignments are intended for your good. So right here in the first few verses of the book you learn something about the heart of God. You learn that his ways are not your ways. You learn that his thoughts are not your thoughts. You hear the call of a sovereign king going out to one of his subjects. And you witness the subject, one of his own prophets, in fact. Subjecting himself not to his sovereign, but to himself. Going his own way and not walking in the way of the king. You know, I'd venture to say that 
there are situations going on right now in your life that if it were totally up to you, you might change something of your current scenario. You know, I, I was thinking about parents of special needs children. And think about the day in and day out challenges that are associated with having someone who needs your assistance 24-7. That's a hard assignment, church. And yet, from what I understand, some of those same parents would testify that while difficult, the challenge has been a blessing to them. It's tested their faith. It's grown them closer to the Lord. It's taught them some wonderful things about the Lord. See, church, a hard assignment is not a blot on God's character. Have you considered that his difficult assignment may have everything to do with refining and shaping your own character that you might become more like Jesus? The testimony of the scriptures speaks loudly right here. The Lord oftentimes hands out difficult assignments. And you know, as difficult as the mission, as this one right here in Jonah 1 verse 1, as difficult of a mission as that is, I believe I found a prophet who had one more difficult. Turn to Hosea. Chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. Two chapters later, Hosea 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, that's Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. The assignment goes against what you might naturally be inclined to do. The purpose you might not fully understand. And yet God calls Hosea to the assignment. I want you to notice what happens here in the midst of the difficult call to Hosea. Hosea chapter 1 verse 3. So he went and took Gomer the daughter of Diblam. And she conceived and bore him a son. Look at Hosea chapter 3 verse 2. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and one half homers of barley. The bottom line church is this. Hosea in the midst of one of the most difficult assignments from the Lord, subjects himself to the command of his sovereign. He obeys. 
Is your walking with the Lord contingent upon the assignment God gives you? Is your walking with the Lord contingent upon the assignment God gives you? Some of you may be moaning the mission the Lord's given to you. You might be in the midst of something difficult and think that you've got it worse than anybody else. As I was reading through the word of the Lord to these prophets, I'm convinced Jonah's mission was not the most difficult. Hard, yes. Not the most difficult. And I see this prophet Hosea and I see the instruction in chapter 1 and chapter 3 and immediately after the instruction on both occasions I see obedience to something that seems outlandish. Doesn't make any sense. But as you read the book of Hosea, you understand what God is doing. You start to see God's purpose in doing what he's doing. Did Hosea fully understand? I don't know fully, but I do know he obeyed. One writer said, we should all be prepared for God to make hard demands upon us. Because that is a part of Christian discipleship. Too often we look upon Christianity as an escape from hell and a guarantee of heaven. Beyond that we feel that we have the right, there's a key phrase, beyond that we feel that we have the right to enjoy the best that this life has to offer. We know that there are those strong verses of discipleship in the Bible, but we have difficulty reconciling them with our ideas of what Christianity should be. You remember Luke chapter 9, 23 and 24? Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So, so what do we see here? We see that the precursor of following Christ is denying self and taking up your cross daily. Those are difficult, aren't they? Amen? Those are hard. And yet, these things come from the mouth of the Lord as precursors to following Him. The tendency for many is this. We want to pull out our eraser and delete the precursors to following Him We like the idea of following after Christ, but we're not so fond of denying self and taking up our cross. Those are are hard things. So, So what happens when the difficult assignment comes from God and you take counsel with your flesh and move out in the opposite direction? Look at verse 3, Jonah chapter 1. Jonah... But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish 
from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah flees. Now the place is not as important as the principle behind his decision. Tarshish is thought to be somewhere in southern Italy, some 2,500 miles away. Tarshish is his destination, but more important in the text is the thought that Jonah could flee from the presence of the Lord. If you write in your Bible, you might just underline the presence of the Lord. It's in there twice, verse 3, the presence of the Lord. We read several weeks ago Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, the psalmist paints a very clear picture of the sovereign God, this God who knows all, this God who sees all, this God who is everywhere present. In fact, I find it interesting that even in the context of that Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. That's where Jonah's going. You know, fleeing from the presence of the Lord is oftentimes associated too, with the place of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, much is spoken about God's presence being in a place, in a certain location, among a certain people. See, I believe there's nothing in particular in Tarshish that was attracting Jonah's attention. Running from God's presence, removing himself from the place of God, his country. Jonah wanted out, and he quickly makes plans to get out of town. I want you to notice that he goes south about 50 miles to the port city of Joppa. I want you to notice that the Lord allowed him safe passage to Joppa. The text then says that he found a ship going to Tarshish. He found a ship. If you're finding something, it means you're looking for it. So he's looking. Text says he found a ship. And then, don't miss this part. The Lord allowed Jonah the resources to pay for his ship ride to Tarshish. The text says he paid the fare and went down into the ship bound for Tarshish. And as though the reader needs to be reminded once again, he mentions he's departing, oh yeah, from the presence of the Lord. (laughs) And I read that and 
saw those things there in verse 3. Those open doors for Jonah. You know, I wonder if he thought things were going well once he boarded the ship. I wonder if he, if he breathed a sigh of relief once he went down into the ship, ready to depart to a faraway land. I wonder if he thought he had remedied his situation with the Lord in that moment. And I was intentional with those words. I wonder if he thought he had remedied his situation with the Lord. One writer says, sometimes when, when everything is going just right, you conclude that God's hand must be in it. But that may not be the case at all. You need something more specific than circumstances. You need the confirmation of the word of God. How many times in your life have you gone against the teaching of the word of God because you had tunnel vision and stubbornly saw only what you wanted? He says, beware of reading providential circumstances in a way that contradicts the explicit commands of the Lord. You ever been there with the Lord? Ever tried to gauge your own situation based upon the circumstances of your situation? Or I'll even put in there your feelings? <laughs> and you've concluded God must have been in it. But we also need to understand one of the lessons I believe here the evil one is more than capable of opening doors as well. His open doors beckon you to distance yourself from the Lord. His open doors will cater to your flesh and seem delightful. His open doors, they tend to exalt your own selfish desires above the testimony of the word of truth. Do not be so foolish to think that God is the only one who opens doors. Now, Jonah, church, Jonah is about to realize something Something specific about God in the very next verse. <laughs> for now, he's in a comfortable place. Doors open for Jonah to carry out his plan to flee from the direct command of God. But here's where I want to leave you this morning. Jonah's sin of disobedience is going to cost him. Some of you this morning may be sitting here in a chair 
And you're in the same comfortable place that Jonah was in in verse 3. I want to call to your attention that if you are walking and living in willful disobedience to the Lord, I want you to know that there's a price tag to that way of living. That it's very possible that just as in the story here in Jonah chapter 1, in Jonah chapter 1 verse 3, he's in a safe place. Jonah chapter 1 verse 4, something starts to happen. It's not so safe anymore. The fare that he paid to go to Tarshish. You read the book of Jonah. You come to the understanding and conclusion. He never arrives in Tarshish, does he? As you continue reading the text, you see that he gets thrown overboard. Doesn't reach his destination. Doesn't even get a refund on his ticket. One writer says this. He paid the full fare. Did not get to the end of his journey. When you run away from the Lord, you never get to where you're going. And you always pay your own fare. On the other hand, when you go the Lord's way, you always get to where you are going. And he pays the fare. When you run away from the Lord, you never get to where you're going. And you always pay your own fare. And when you go the Lord's way, you always get to where you're going. He pays the fare. Church, walk in the way of the Lord. When he speaks, listen and obey. Trust that the word of the Lord has a purpose. Trust that his, his word shall prosper in the thing for which it was sent. Isaiah 55 verse 11. It's not going to return to him void. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. The sovereign King demands and deserves obedience. Here and then lies the proper protocol for all subjects. Of the sovereign king. Trust. And obey. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this word of the Lord. May we always cherish and treasure the word of the Lord. As subjects of the sovereign king, may we walk diligently in the way that you've called us to go. May we not have anything to do with the ways of the world, the lures of the evil one. May we walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. I pray, Lord, that we would see your word as a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. Pray, Lord, that we would see your word standing firm in the heavens forever. It's a sure word of testimony. And as a creation in Christ, I pray, Lord, that when your word speaks, that we would go, that we would walk, that we would be diligent to carry out the orders of our sovereign king. Teach us, I pray, Lord, through your Holy Spirit to walk in your ways. For there's no other way to truly be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Thank you, Father. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.